G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan to hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and good hunting. Good evening. Welcome back to the Hunters Campfire podcast. And tonight, I've been looking forward to this podcast for a very, very long time. We've got a special guest that we will keep nameless for a moment, and uh, I welcome uh, co-hosts Mark and Jono back to the podcast. How you going, fellas? Good, mate. Good, very good. And how's yourself? Oh, great. Other than the freezing cold weather that we've uh, mm. we've received literally overnight. Uh, was was told it to be four degrees here this morning. It was minus three point three, and the forecast tells us it's going to get cold tomorrow. So um, <laughs> I hope my little lambs up the paddock can survive the night. But mm. certainly uh, brought on brought on winter pretty quick. It's sure yep. run with vengeance, isn't it? Yeah, yep. it kind of closed the door on summer, didn't it? it went bang. That's yep. it. That's the end of it. So um, uh, we'll have a, a quick around the grounds, but uh, I, I should invite Errol Mason, the one and only Errol Mason. And if you don't know Errol, he's uh, very well known for his Hunt Smart system and Secrets of the Samba volumes. Um, amazing work that you've done over the over the years, Errol, and we'll, we'll get into the detail of that. But welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Good stuff, mate. So, um, as, as per usual, we'll just run around the grounds um, and just uh, have a quick chat about some of the things that are going on. Mark, what's 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 going on since our last catch-up? Oh, so, I have a Savage 110 backcountry coming from Naya for review in 6.5 Creedmoor, which is a calibre I have never actually shot. So, it's going to be quite interesting to see how that goes. Um, the other exciting thing is I've bought another shotgun. Uh, Oh, you bought it, did you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a down on target. There was an absolutely beautiful 28 gauge uh, shotgun there. It's a, a CZ, but it's a US made CZ. Um, so, you know, parts out, of, parts out of Turkey, probably assembled in the US. Uh, couldn't, couldn't resist it. I own it. You know, shoots those little battery size rounds. So that's my latest. Um, I've got a thing for side-by-side side shotgun so whenever whenever i see a good one i end up with it so yeah far out. yeah i've only yeah, ever i've only ever shot with yeah, unders and shot. overs mm. so I, I, it's 20 gauges it's got to find a 20 gauge next got to find a nice 20 gauge no, no very good and you uh, also have the minecraft edition of the uh the brx in your position that's right yes the minecraft edition as and the reason for those wondering why we're calling the brx that uh, we customized with beretta the minecraft some wit on social media decided to have a laugh at it and call it dave, you know, dave like, willie wit no i don't think i don't think it was dave willie to start with <laughs> but someone 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 made a disparaging comment about the camouflage pattern looked like a kid design it via minecraft so we decided to um grasp that 
that comment with both hands and <laughs> and rebranded the Minecraft rifle. So, uh, Ariel, if, if you're not familiar with Minecraft, uh, it's a very digital, pixelated, uh, popular game that kids love. So, uh, it's a, it's a camo a camo pattern that looks like that. It's a di- what they call a digicam, and if you uh, if you see it on um on our Instagram, you'll see that every picture um. Um, incorporates a little Minecraft guy dancing with it too. So it's pretty cool. We're, we're well, owning I'm, it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad somebody brought it up because that saved me having to do it. <laughs> Jono, what's happening? Well, I um I popped to on Target with Mark, and the first thing he did was show me the shotgun that he was thinking of buying. It is a beautiful little shotgun. <laughs> I will uh, <clears throat> I will admit. Um, I actually started shooting shotguns with a side by side, so I do mm. have a, a a liking for them. I prefer shooting side by side to uh, over and under. I love the traditional shotgun, but the main reason for popping to on target was a for Mark to get the Minecraft gun, but for me to pick up Mark Benelli mm. Lupo, which is absolutely beautiful. It's a gorgeous little rifle, um, and I'm really looking forward to uh, getting it hunting. So that was the highlight of my week. Mm. It is most definitely a lovely looking rifle. There is no doubt about that. So I'll be sharing some pictures of that pretty soon. Good stuff. Uh, get it hunting. Yeah. yeah, it does a wonderful combination of of timber and metal, but in mm. a very modern angular design. So it's absolutely, a I was. I don't know. Yeah, I know you've got one. I was, I was having a look through the manual, and you can adjust the the the, the drop of the comb and everything. Yeah, everything. It's pretty awesome. It's really, it's a very, really modular. very future, well, futuristic. It, it's just got all of the the modern componentry that you could expect um, from Vidali. So, I mean, it is nice. You've got the timber mm-hmm. one. I've got the synthetic version. Um, when I picked it up, it just has a, a, a build quality about it it's... that I probably wasn't expecting, um, just looking at the marketing or the pictures. Um, but the, the smoothness of it, it's just nothing I've really felt from a rifle. You slide the bolt forward, you, you barely even feel it. Pick, it just slides in. Yeah. Excellent. Well, my highlight, very similar to yours, uh, although I went down to Ontario a little bit uh, earlier than you picked up that Benelli Lupo, and it, it is a beautiful rifle, but I, I also got the um, the Breda Ultra Leggero uh, mm. under-over sporter shotgun, which I'll, um, which I'll be doing for a bit of field work, um, teaching Missy my indicator, um, bit of retrieve work with with the local hair population, which is going to be great. But yeah, I would be pretty keen, Mark, to um, maybe trade the modern Ultra Leggero with you for a week and try the side by side. Be quite an interesting experience. Sure. Well, yeah. I have. See how that goes. I have a 12, 12 gauge side by side, and I will soon have a twenty eight gauge, which is you know mm. tiny little caliber. Um, but. That particular one you picked up, that is a fantastically light shotgun too. It's their lightest build. Wonderful. Yeah, lightest gun. built shotgun ever. So it'd be interesting to see what the recoil's like. They've taken quite a bit of timber out of it. Yeah. But, um, but that's the I way bet. they that's the way they're doing it. Yeah. I'm not yep. sure if I want to shoot super heavy out of it, but it's it's, it's well, certainly fine out. it was certainly light. Because I've got the Frankie and that that's you know, that's more of a a, a standard uh under over design. Yeah. Errol, I um, I had a, a a good read of your uh, biography that was on the on the website, um, but I'm trying to cast my mind back to whether you did a lot of work with shotguns at all. Did you have a a, a time with shotguns, or still do, or have a preference? Do you like your side by side under overs? 
never been uh, a great shotgun person uh, as a boy on the farm. The best we had was a single barrel H&R, you know, the mm-hmm. ones Harry and Richards. Yeah. Uh, later on, yeah, I had a Winchester 101. Oh, yeah. And I actually had a Watson Brothers 28, uh, 28 gauge mm. uh, made in the UK. Uh, perhaps my favourite gun was a Remington 1100 for ducks. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I've mostly been uh, a rifle shooter. Bruno Model 2s, yeah, probably my favourite rifle of all time. Uh, but rifles has been my main thing. Mm. Rifles and rifle shooting. Accuracy. You'd, you'd recognise a few of those names, Mark? Yeah, well, look, um, there was uh, the um, the 101 was quite a nice side-by-side, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was. I owned that in the 19, yeah. early 1970s, bought it in yeah. Robertson Sports Store, Queen Street, Brisbane. Oh, yeah, 1970. Was, uh, yeah. Based on yep. Nick Harvey's recommendations in Sporting Shooter. Uh, likewise, they... likewise. Uh, Bruno Model 2, mm. bought it from uh, Robertson Sports Store, Queen Street, Brisbane. I was in the infantry at the time with Nine Ra, training for Vietnam, and uh, used to follow Nick Harvey religiously. In sporting shooter from the time I was fourteen, <laughs> I reckon. And yeah, I bought that for ninety nine dollars. Yeah, brand new, mate. Shot hundreds of rabbits with it. Four by thirty two, Tasco scope, IMI hollow points, Nick Harvey's recommendation for zeros, spot on at twenty five, one inches high at fifty, spot on at seventy five, three point two inches low at hundred. Head shoot <laughs> rabbits all day. Unreal. And and, and I- go on. I bet you walked out of the store with it over your shoulder and walked down the street. Ah, uh, that's dead right, mate. <clears throat> yep. It wasn't an issue. No. No, it wasn't remember an issue. We, remember they used to have the barrel in the front where they just had the old 303s and there were so many of them, they were just nose muzzled down in a barrel and you could kind of like, you used to, it was like a bargain bin. You used to wrap through and try and find the best one. Uh, I never had that opportunity being <laughs> a kid on the farm. We never went anywhere, but you did get the weekly times in the last... Two pages of Weekly Times was all uh, Army disposal ads, including 303s for virtually nothing. Yeah, all were 30s. That's it. Well, Robinson's had a barrel. They used to have like. Oh, did they? It was just oh, like, okay. it was literally a barrel, and they used to just throw them in the barrel. Right. And you used to literally kind of, you know, oh, this one's okay. Yeah. And oh, no, hang on, I reckon this one's a bit better. And, you, and, you know, and they, I think they were. And they were nothing. They were absolutely nothing cost. Well, it was almost like, you know, if you buy one, you got one free type thing because they wanted to move the stock. Well, it's a bit of a story how I got my first, uh, bought my first uh, high-powered rifle. I was in at the School of Infantry, Ingleburn. We got paid peanuts. I mean, peanuts. We didn't get 20 cents an hour, mate. Anyhow, yeah. um, we had bingo at Ingleburn at the School of Infantry camp. And I won the bingo jackpot. 80 bucks. Mate, well, I was rich. Where I, what did I do? Straight into Shooter's Home, George Street, Sydney. They had a Model 670 control, uh, push feed Winchester, second hand. Mm. Sure, so, a sure sight scope. Ever heard of a sure sight scope? I bought it. Uh, what what shot, is that, Errol? Mate, it was almost a no name brand. That's mm. a brand. Uh, but the Model 670 was you know, a very basic uh, push yeah. feed 243. Yeah. I love it. And later on, when I moved to Brisbane to um, Nine Ra, 
uh, when I'd come back, I had it rebarreled by uh, at Robertson Sports Store, and here's, here's, this goes to show you how long TSE Total Solutions Engineering have been around. Mm. That was 1971. They rebarreled that to 308 for me. Mm. Oh, okay. And uh, here I am. I come back from a fully tacked bivouac, right? Training for Vietnam, living on ration packs, living in a hoochie, freezing cold, walking all day, carrying a M60. That was my role. I'd come back. What do you reckon I did? Did I go to the mm. nightclub? Did I go to the pub? Mate, loaded all that hoochie, ration packs, crap crap gear that we, we were given back in those days. Absolute rubbish. Into my FB Holden, out to Gundawindi. West of Gundawindi to Two Beer, where there was uh, heaps of pit, wild pigs at the time mm. feeding on or wrecking and feeding on sorghum crops. So that was my first experience. Again, living in a hoochie for two or three days. But, uh, God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call the king my cousin. It was such an experience. Yeah, right. I'll, I, I, can, I can tell you that uh, I live on the Darling Down. Okay. And uh, you missed a few because they've bred up since you Oh, left. yeah, I reckon. I, 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 I missed plenty. I missed the first one I ever fired at. Yeah. And I'll tell that, you that. Six, that 670 was a... Um... Was a, uh, I think it was an American, um, like a supermarket rifle. Yeah, it would have been. It was a basic. Yeah, I had one. I, I had one. In, I had I had one very briefly in two four three as well. And that yeah, that there was like the Model seventy, and then yeah. there was like the you know sold at supermarkets the that yeah, particular that's one. It. No floor yeah. plate. There was no floor. That's plate. right. That's right. It was, yeah, it was it a basically. Blind. Yeah. That's yeah. It. Anyhow, that was that's how I got my first rifle. Bingo. School of Infantry. Amazing. So go. let's 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 step you back a bit. Um, yeah. So so you obviously went through some military service, but um, tell us a bit about uh, what got you into hunting to start with, and uh, yeah, how that came about. Because it wasn't too long into your your uh, your hunting that you you decided to chase samba, was it? Well. I didn't. I didn't start hunting samba until I was pretty well uh, twenty-eight. However, how to get into hunting in the first place? I think how to get into hunting was how so many of us do. I think it's in your genes. Mm. I just think it's genetic. Uh, my mother was one of about five or six kids. Her and a twin brother. My mum lived for a hundred seven months and three days, and only passed about eighteen months ago. My mother was a born hunter. My mother owned staghounds, whippets, really? fox terriers, ferrets. My mum my told me she was the best ferreter in the area because uh, Isabel Ferrier told her that she was the best ferreter because she was the only one that filled in the rabbit burrows after they dug them out to get the ferrets. <laughs> Anyhow, they fished. They lived off the land. And this photo behind me, which you can't see now due to the video, I put it there because that's, that's where I was raised, in that view over that serpentine one on river valley mm. so i was raised with my mum's genes her brother jack twin brother jack was a hunter and it was just in it was just in my blood was it a decision no it was something i had to do mm. it's not something my father had no interest none of the brothers mostly had no interest but it was something um i was just driven to do so i started off with a single barrel at home any opportunity hunting rabbits hares foxes Ducks and and then later on when I went to school of infantry, I used to go to um, I used to go to Elliston. You know where Elliston is? Moonan Flat, Elliston Station. 
at Moon and Flat from Scone. It's the one that Packer bought. Packer bought the place. And I used to hunt wallaroos there. I mean, there was a huge number of wallaroos and foxes. And uh, and that was mostly with, quite frankly, a Creco 22 Magnum hmm. and, and that uh, 670. And from there, I went to, I was transferred to Ingleburn and uh, School of Infantry. Sorry, I was transferred to a Nogra, Nine Road Nogra, and then I got into pig hunting. Hmm. Uh, and I went on a few pig hunts in more recent years, but um the last time we went on a pig hunt i think we shot 50 pigs in two days and i said to my mate jeff McClure, there's got to be more to hunting than this mm. you know it was really just vermin shooting we left shot them left them and for that moment i just got into samba hunting and i've never changed i've never looked back i just i'm addicted it's once you get into samba you're addicted and the only uh remedy is more and more samba hunting <laughs> and well, yeah. uh and I, you know, for eight years, from the time I was 28, look, I was a rover playing football, so I was very fit when I took it up. And I did what was called back in the, that day, walking them up. You mm. know, it's pretty well spook and shoot. And I did that for eight or nine years. And every 12 days I got lucky. Every 12 days of, of spook and shoot, I managed to shoot one. Um, but then in 1989, I just got absolutely fascinated with the idea of trying to learn about them and trying to get great photos. So I had this custom rifle built for me by Jack Miller, the, who used to own Shooter Supplies in Russell Street, Melbourne. And Jack uh, built, um, I bought a, a Mint uh, FN Morsen 98 parade rifle, full wood, stripped it down, um, kept the original barrel, Jack just profiled the, the, those acute steps out of it, had it magnaported, a Lee 6 fiberglass stop, about one of the first of its time. You know, they just weren't available at that time. I had it built up, and um, but before I really got to give it much use, I got fascinated with changing to camera. So in 1989, I went to Germany to study hunting and game management. I stayed with hunters in Germany and saw how game was managed and, and how they hunted and what firearms and tactics they use there. And while I was there, I bought my first professional camera, a Nikon F3 and a 400, a 300 F 4.5 IFED lens. And um, I used that, got started photographing Samba. And back in those days, it was the best film was Kodachrome 64 ASA. <laughs> yeah, and you had to shoot it off a tripod. It was so slow. Uh, you know, it wasn't like today's um, ISOs. You can wind up to 12,800 or whatever. You were stuck with ISO 64. So I started uh, photographing Samba with that. And through photographing Samba, I then really started to learn just how damn smart they were. Hmm. Before that, I didn't really get it. But once I started to photograph them, and here's the thing, I started at the Bunyip Samba enclosure, 40 acres of forest, two tree swamp. And back then in 1990, the caretaker, Mike Harrison, had made sure that those deer were kept as wild as possible. He didn't want them, he didn't want them domesticated. So I'm going down there thinking, oh, this is going to be easy to get a great photo of a Samba with my new Nikon F3, 400 lens, or RRR tripod. Bugging me dead. I couldn't find one. I couldn't find them. How big was the land? It was only 40 acres. 
There was wow. forest and a, with a big, thick tea tree swamp and uh, impenetrable swamp. And one afternoon, I spotted these deer with their heads down, actually sneaking away from me 150 yards ahead of me. They were in absolute what is known now as sneak mode. And then I got it. These deer really are smart. Hmm. And I guess that just really got me in. And uh, I went to the Bunyip enclosure every Sunday afternoon for 10 years. And look, it's a lot of, it's, a lot of what I've done, the journey, has by, been by chance and opportunity. That was an incredible opportunity. And at the time, I never foresee what a valuable opportunity it was. But by going there for 10 years every Sunday to photograph known age deer in known age state of biology, known age uh, state of pedicle growth, uh, antler growth, velvet growth, uh, rubbing out. You know, it was known how many days since they'd cast, how many days. So we knew how many days since they rubbed out. Uh, since they cast, you know, it's amazing that these deer carry, take 165 days to 185 days to grow their antlers. To, when they're at the 30, around that 30 inch mark, they're, mm. they're taking five and a half to six months to grow. That's an amazing amount of time. Then they carry them for the balance of the year in hard antler. So I was able to get these high quality photographs and all this data, and at the same time, I was also going to the Pendleside Samba enclosure at Warrialic, which also kept a huge amount of data on all their enclosed deer, including antler casting, wallowing dates, uh, birth dates, you know, uh, gestation periods, as did the bunyip. So I, I tapped in to all mm. this data, and, and especially also into the data that was also taken from Pendleside by uh, Max Downs, who was a professional wildlife biologist, and he ended up writing the report, The Forest Deer Project, which included a lot of that data. Um, anyhow, when I got come around to doing volume one of my book, that data from Bunyip and uh, Enclosure and Pendleside was so valuable, and so were the photos. And, um, and, and at the moment, this week, to last month, I've been flat out uh, I've got the antlers from one stag from Pendleside his whole 14 years. Wow. 14 years, left and right Prince? antlers, matching. Name? Yep, Prince. Prince of Pendleside. He died prematurely at 15. They lived to 24, but he died prematurely at 24. He was shot by a poacher when he was nine, smashed his shoulder blade. When he died, I actually got his shoulder blade, recovered it. And the recast the calcification of that shoulder blade, the repair was amazing. Hmm. But he survived that 45 silence, 45, 70, 400 grain bullet. His friend, his mate in the same enclosure, wasn't so lucky. They kill, killed him and took his head off. But I've got those antlers and I just invested a huge amount of money to get an aluminium pole constructed, powder coated here in Bansal. And it's a totem pole. Those antlers, over two metres high, got our big logo on the top and I'm taking it to the Wild Deer Expo. It's going to be a feature of our stand at the Wild Deer Expo this weekend coming. And it's just amazing. And in volume one of the book, there's a table my wife developed 
with all the data of the, all those antlers, the weight of each antler, length, diameter, um, etc. So look, I've been fortunate in my journey. A lot of my journey has been luck, but I guess you make your own luck by just getting out there and mm, doing it, being sure. committed. Yep, you've got to make some of your own luck. When but, you, you know, go on. When you were in Germany, you said you yep. went over to Germany to, I did. to learn game management. Yes. Um, what did you take away from Germany? I, I'm, I'm going to be really naive here. and I, I'm fairly sure that Samba aren't residents in Germany. Coming no, from, uh... well, certainly they're not. No, but they yeah. they have roe deer, red deer. The main the main deer numbers are a roe because they're so yeah. small. You know, a roe deer only weighs buck weighs eighteen kilos. Mm. A, a roe deer buck is so small he has to actually reach upwards to, to eat the head off, take the head off wheat. I've got oh. photos of it. I got photos of it. They'll fit in a a forty liter day pack, which right. I bought when I was in Germany. I went to. Franconia is like the mire of hunting stores. Mm. And I bought a row pack, mm. row, a row mm. buck rucksack. No, didn't, was it? But what did I take away from Germany in terms of game management? Well, it's highly organised, but the truth is you have to be wealthy because it's the whole of Germany is broken up into, you know, maybe 10,000 acre uh, patches of hunting leases. And back then in 1989 when I was there, hunting lease was eight to 10,000 Deutschmarks. You had to be wealthy. It was a sport for the wealthy in Germany. But to um, to obtain a license, you basically almost had to do a degree in hunting. You had, right. you, it was a very comprehensive training course. Um, and they worked with, closely with the farmers. The, the leasee of the hunting lease had to uh, compensate farmers for damage by the wild to his crops. Uh, you'd also make arrangements, of course, with the farmer to leave parts of the crops unharvested for the wildlife. And the whole country was just a mosaic of forest, farmland, and high seats everywhere. They, they hunted primarily out of high seats as, or tree stands as we would know them. Um, and they're everywhere. You can see them from the autobahns. Hmm. When you're in a high seat, as it was in Germany, you're almost... You're sitting on the edge of the village. But the thing that it lacked that we are so fortunate to have, it had no wildness. The wildness was completely, uh, had been completely tamed from, from the whole of the country. Whereas we've got this incredible wildness and these incredible Samba deer, which are, you know, the epitome of wildness itself. Yeah. So, so... Being such a different place to hunt, how much of that game management learning were you able to bring back here and layer across wild samba and you know in the Australian wilderness? Because you're clearly not managing farmland here. Uh, virtually nothing. Hmm. No, the most uh, where I picked up the most importance uh, uh, knowledge for if you own your own private area of mountain forest here in Victoria for management would be from the American whitetail. Okay. Yeah. I subscribed to Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine from 1994. That was a fantastic magazine. And then later Quality Deer Management Association, Quality Whitetail Magazine. The knowledge from that, the science from that, those magazines was so much more applicable and helpful 
um, to Australian situation if you're fortunate enough to actually own, be able to buy a decent swathe of mountain forest country, which a lot of people are doing now. Mm. A lot of people have bought up, you know, four or 500 acres and, and larger areas of mountain forest. And they're putting in crops. They're putting in watering points. They're putting in tree stands. I had 600 acres and, and that's what I did. That's where I ran my training courses. And I put in tree stands. I put in watering points. Uh, I put in huge amounts of fertilizer and uh, seed, a four-deer seed mix. I spent ages up there with on foot with a chest spreader. Uh, fertilizer, seed, um, yeah, you know, it was a great experience. Mm. When COVID hit, I sold that, but I've still got the rights, uh, lease the rights to run the training courses there. But it's amazing, six hundred acre of uh, mountain forest, which just lends itself to perfect being able to watch Samba unalarmed with a group of training course participants, you know, eight. Sure, you can still spook the deer easy enough because they can hear camera shutter at 240 yards. They hear the subdued whisper at 240 yards. You know, on the course, blokes get to try fire across the gully at them. Well, take a simulated shot. I say, don't dry fire because at 300 yards, that Samba will hear the firing pin fall and bolt. And sure enough, they do. So, but that block was so steep. Um, that it's such an incredible place for observing and watching what unalarmed Samba really do. And for many people who do my training course, that's the first time they've ever seen unalarmed Samba in their life and they're amazed at their behaviour. And as soon as they see them, the way they behave, they realise, hey, and here I am walking around the bush, stumbling, all the noise I'm making, and I think I'm going to get close to these deer. Because they're already, they're always wired. They're wired for predators the whole time. Mm. They might look relaxed, but they are just one click from right on it, right on. So I I asked a friend of mine who's read everything that you've possibly put out, uh, you know, from all of the books and bits and pieces, and he's he's from Victoria, but his spent uh, a lot of his life up here in, in Queensland uh, dreaming about going back to Victoria and chasing Samba every year. But he asked a question, I think it's a, a question that can you might have been sort of alluding to, and I asked him what he might ask you if he had the opportunity. He said to ask about the zone of silence. Oh, Does that make sense of, to you? Zone of silence is three most probably important words in the whole Samba vocabulary. Absolutely. The zone of silence applies to every creature on earth. Uh, look, I'm just happy to give you a very, very detailed understanding of what a zone of silence is and why it's so essential. It's essential to every creature. Every prey species on Earth must be able to optimise their senses. Hearing, smell, vision. The only way you can optimise those senses is to be in an area where there is no air movement, no wind. Wind creates noise. Wind creates wind noise over the ear. If there's no noise, no wind, you've got total silence. When you've got total silence, you can hear a pin drop. When there's total silence, there is no branches falling out of trees as in wind. 
There's no twigs falling. If there's a twig crack, it's got to be a predator. It's not a branch falling, a twig falling. So all prey species gravitate to zones of silence for the absolute protection, optimised use, optimised use of their senses to avoid being the next meal. And look, way back in, I first identified this way back in, uh, God, early 1980s. I had, um, I was absolute novice. Whatever mistake you could do then, I'd done it over and over and did it over and over for, for the eight, nine years of walking them up when I knew nothing. Anyhow, I'd followed these fresh tracks up over a saddle and everything I did then was totally wrong. But the bottom line is I got to sit down. I watched, but not until I'd spooked the deer that were on the opposite face and they bolted. And then I sat down to consider what I'd just done. And while I was sitting there, in the half hour I was sitting there musing about how I spooked them, how I should have approached this, I'm watching all these prey animals. They're all here in this zone of silence. This gully was just absolute, absolute, a quiet zone, total. And suddenly I realised all these prey animals are there. There's rabbits, there's, there's birds. Um... And then I noticed, you know, there was a fox sneaking through, looking, looking for rabbits. And I realised there was so many prey species in this small gully. It was bloody amazing. Hmm. And then I'd read in a book called uh, A Herd of Red Deer, written by uh, Fraser Darling, a wildlife biologist from the UK, who studied a herd of red deer in Scotland and published this book in 1933 called a herd of red deer and in that book there is just one sentence and he says we found the stags where there was no sound in the in the herbage it was a zone of silence and you know that's it i bought that book i bought the, the recent paperback copy with color photos in it i've gone back to that very sentence because I thought later, I think you must have written more than that about this. So I've gone back to read what else I'd missed, but no, I hadn't. That's all he said. But as soon as I saw these prey species and the samba in this Sona Silence gully, I just got it. It was just a light glow moment. And from that time, um, it just became so apparent in all my observations. That's where you find these deer. You won't find them in windswept forest spots. You won't, they just won't be there. Someone read volume one of my book and he was hunting cheetle deer from Queensland. And he rang me up or emailed me. He said, we're hunting and we couldn't find a cheetle. He was out at Charles Towers. It was terribly windy day. And he remembered what I wrote in volume one about all prey species gravitate to a zones of silence. So they went looking for a zone of silence and they found a huge mob of cheetle shoulder to shoulder in this only quiet spot. That's where they were. Hmm. It's an absolutely essential fundamental uh, point to understand in hunting. 
First, find your zone of silence. And how do you do it? You use your binoculars. You look for where there's no foliage moving with your binos. Oh, okay. So you yeah. often be walking through a, um, you know, I found it the last trip we went on, you're walking through areas and you find yourself in a quiet basin that's, you know, was, was out of sight. You sort of stumble across it. You know, I often think that, you know, if you're hunting in these areas, especially up Queensland way where it's warmer, you walk into an area and it just feels cool and it feels nice and it feels calm. These are, these are the sorts of places you're talking about. Exactly. Look, I was, I was guiding people on fellow back in uh, 2000 and um, we we're on this windswept face uh, up uh, north of Swiss Creek. And, you know, it was absolutely windswept. But we came around the, the spur line, we crossed over the spur line and suddenly we're in a zone of silence. It was like absolute windswept noise to suddenly nothing, total silence. Soon as I noticed that, within as soon as we entered the edge of that zone, I just dropped on the ground with the with the clients and started the glass instantly. If we had kept walking, we wouldn't have got we wouldn't have got a shot at those fellows because they would have bolted. But we drop straight down, and that's the key. As soon as you enter a zone of silence, dropped on the ground, binos out, glass. That's where the animals will be. And sure enough, that's where these fellow were, and these guys were able to take a shot unalarmed in their beds from 80 yards. Hmm. So zones of silence. When you hear of you hear of uh, you hear about deer and their and their home range. In their territories and things like that. Um, this this zone of silence is it more important for uh, you know does with fawns, or is it more important for you know um, smaller groups? Is it less important for stags that are roaming and looking? Um, you know they're not going to go too far out of home range, I imagine. So they must all have a a zone of silence, so to speak, in a in their active range, that be fair? It's important to all of them. They all bed in zones of silence. It doesn't matter the sex or the age. They will all bed in zones of silence. Stags will bed in zones of silence. Sure, stags roam much further. But when they're roaming, uh, that's not bedding. When they're bedding, they bed. They all choose zones of silence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I like it. Countless observations and photos of stags bedded in zones of silence. Countless video, photos, hinds. And all the prey species will be there. The wallabies, the kangaroos, they'll be there with them. Because remember, in Victoria's high country, you know, they've been prey, these prey species, uh, wallabies particularly and kangaroos, they've been preyed upon pretty heavily by, by dingoes over the years. They're all so alert. I was just thinking about, you know, your description there. When I took the a fellow buck with Tim a couple of years ago, it was it was a heavy, really windy day. And we were coming slowly working our way downhill and the wind was really strong coming up. So we were walking into the wind, so we were right with the wind. And um 
we were walking on a vehicle track, some private property working on a vehicle track, and the vehicle track turned turned to the right, and but the wind was blowing straight on. So we actually left the track, crossed the fence, and was were back off track in the scrub. And I remember we just, you know, it was blowing a gale, and just as we crested and dropped below the wind line, there was about... 20 bucks mm. below us on a on a you know a scrape that they'd created that was as big as a tennis court so you know it was grass and there was just this bare bare area under trees where they'd just been congregating and that was exactly what it was but for us we were able to be in the wind and take the shot and shoot into the silence so it gave us like perfect cover you know, we got within, I think I shot within, you know, 70, 80 metres. And I was sitting there with the wind just exposed. I was just on the very edge of it. And they were right in the gully there in this in this area. And that would have been for them, you know. And I remember when we went down there and we got the deer and, um, and broke it up. That was the one where I fell over carrying out through a creek. And went up. That was that. that. They were in that. And that was below the wind line. So, yeah, that would have been, you know, the, that would have been a zone of silence for those animals once they were in there. But we were lucky to they're actually be able to shoot into it. Every creature gravitates mm. to zones of silence. Mm. Interesting mm. to think about. Isn't it? Yeah, well, we're all think, uh, think about Think about what you would do. You, what, everything, every creature on earth hates wind including mm. homo sapiens what do we mm. do the last place we want to be is in wind we will do anything to get into a zone of silence out of wind think about everything you do that's what we do same well on the property i hunt up on the block uh, up there in the brisbane valley the two dogs i've shot off that block they've been in what you might call the dog zone of silence hunting prey in there and i've i've, I've seen them both They've both been in, and I've heard more dogs in there, but they're, they're, that's where they go. They, they're in that space. We call it the bush block. It's where it, you know, it drops below and it's in a gully. But again, I've shot a number of deer out of there over the period of time. Um, and some of the best uh, rubs on the on the block are in that area as well too. So, yeah, you, you know, you class that again as a zone of silence. It's hard to glass because it's so dense and so... Um, Typical Brisbane Valley, you know, there's no vista. It's just up and down and up and down and up and down. But that, that'd that be, a, I, I'd say, I'm going to reevaluate that as a zone of silence as well, I think. Yeah, well, the mountain, in mountain forest country, zones of silence remain pretty well constant mm. because typically you have two prevailing winds. Mm. In Victoria, you typically you have a northwesterly and a southwesterly blowing over the spur lines. So you've got zones of silence down the side, uh, in the, in all those gullies, and they remain pretty well constant. Mm. So you're going to have a zone of silence with a, when there's a northwesterly. You're going to have a zone of silence when there's a southwesterly. Mm. And the, as I said, the, the, those winds, and, and look, this is a part of becoming a good hunter, is knowing your area. You get to know your area. That's the first thing you must do. Get to know your area. Find a top spot and get to know it and keep hunting that area all the time. 
especially important with Samba because Samba are so difficult to hunt. And the first one of the first things you need to understand or identify is to the prevailing winds. Mm. Because the secret with Samba is you must keep your scent from the deer. And the only way you can do that is make sure you know the prevailing winds, direction, and uh, and you can't afford with Samba, you can't afford to be standing in the wind and taking the shot in the zone of silence. Because the deer won't be there. You can't be on the spur line in the wind and take the shot because your scent is at those deer in 30 seconds and they're gone. So you have to be off the spur line. The, the big no-no is to be on a spur line. For a start, you're silhouetted and they will spot your movement. Samba spot movement. 300 yards away, silhouetted. 300 yards away, if you're down the side of that spur face, they can't see you at all. You can move around in the open, as I've done hundreds of times. But you must be off the spur line. You must be out of the wind or the thermal because otherwise you're allowing your scent to be taken into that whole gully and setting up that whole gully and there goes your opportunity of getting a deer out of that gully. So, you know, samba hunting in Victoria's mountain forest, it really has a lot of um, skill about it and mm. it really is knowledge-based. Uh, without knowledge, you're just a spook and shoot hunter and you become very frustrated and pretty unsuccessful for the amount of time you put in. How do I know? Uh, I did it for eight, nine years. Whatever mistake you can make, I did it over and over. But once you understand the deer, once you understand their behaviour intimately and understand the overlays that I write about in the books, and the overlays, a series of overlays and many overlays relate primarily to the weather, uh, the wagon wheel concept of samba movement, the roadmap of samba movement, and hunting pressure, and how they relate to large trees. When you factor those and zones of silence, when you factor in these overlays onto any area of land, you can narrow down where they're going to be to 10% of total forest. You can just predict where they're going to be. And there's a few other variables. I won't give everything away on this podcast, but there's a few other very important variables that aren't understood, but made very clear in my book uh, about distance, uh, how far they travel. That's so misunderstood. Um, Samba, here's the thing about Samba. They're big lazy brown deer they don't travel further than they absolutely have to and they travel at snail speed unless they're spooked by clumsy homo sapiens yeah i was gonna say i've I've seen plenty of samba traveling at freight train speed (laughs) i me, me too in the past me too i don't worry about that yeah, so, so without um, without asking for the secrets, because that's not what the purpose of this was, um, what advice would you give to a travelling hunter, though, from, from Queensland that may not have the time to get to know a specific set of land? That walking them up process seems to be what's available to someone who doesn't live in the area and get to know a piece of land, other than coming back time after time and getting to know it. Um, 
are there are there specific strategies around the walk and stalk or the spot and spook or the spook and spotter that you would that you would have you would see people focus on? No. Um, look, um, I know this is um, promoting what I do. No. But the reason I do what I do is because I've learned it's just the only way. Mm. You have to have the knowledge. And the further you live away from Samba habitat, the damn more sense it makes to maximise your opportunities when you do have the time to travel those long distances to hunt Samba. You've got to acquire the knowledge. The knowledge is the absolute power with Samba. You go from being almost too hard to hunt, get the knowledge, acquire the knowledge, and it's, it's like it's almost too easy. You can turn the tables completely on the deer. But the knowledge I'm talking about has taken me 40 years to acquire. Mm. There were light globe moments over the last 30, well, the last 23 years in particular, um, where sometimes I think, Errol, you're a bit slow. You should have got that earlier, you know. Mm. But... Once you've got this basic knowledge, intimate knowledge of their behaviour, you really do become a hunter, not a bushwalker with a rifle. And you can become look at my look look at my success stories. I have people come from interstate. A good example, actually, my success stories. They're people from interstate. Never hunted Samba before. They come from Queensland. They've come from Townsville, Cairns, um, Darwin. Newcastle, they've come from all over. What they do is they book the course, they take a week's leave, they come and do the course, I could tell them a good spot to go to, they go, within three days, they've shot their first sample, doing exactly, find it, they find it exactly where I say it will be in the conditions, the weather conditions of the day, and in relation to the topography and, and the wagon wheel rim, the wagon wheel uh, rim, the spokes, the hub, and they will shoot that deer just as I teach on the course. Stationary, broadside, unalarmed. Boom. Mm. One shot kill. Everything I teach on the course is you do not shoot at moving Samba. And it's so easy to make them. It's so easy when you've got the knowledge not to spook them because you know where they're going to be. You've narrowed it down with the overlays to 10% of total forest. You then strategically planned how in low impact route to get to the spot to watch that temp to glass that ten percent or ambush that ten percent from tree stands, uh, ground hides or whatever, and then you can take the shot when it suits you at an animal that's totally broadside, and if it's not moving, you can make it stop so damn easily, and they will not spook. You can make them stop from 25 yards to three, 400 yards, and they will stand broadside and stare at you. Now, there's there's a thing, you know, um, I shouldn't tell you this because I should be trying to sell you $4,000 binoculars. <laughs> but if you buy off my website, a bloody Fox 40 whistle, the $30, of which about $9 is poachage costs, my, my margin's about four bucks. After GST, you can make Samba stand up and bloody stare at you from 400 yards away. 
that you will never find with $40,000 worth of optics. You can make them stop dead in their tracks at 200 yards, stand broadside with a shot. Fox 40, sonic blast whistle, 120 decibels. So bloody loud. If your mate blows it near your ear, you're just about deaf in you. <laughs> and when you blow it, you're not the same to say, what the fuck was that? <laughs> right? Fuck, what was that? And they just stand up and stare. But you, the thing is, you make Samba stop broadside because the only thing that kills these deer is shot placement. Mm. Look, there's so much talk, and, and here's here's the big um, here's the big unsatisfactory thing about hunting. In all the time I've been in hunting, all the talk is about calibers, bigger calibers, a three seven five, this caliber, that caliber. It's as though there was nothing to know about Samba behaviour. My first rifle was a three seven five because I thought I had to have it for walking them up. But what did I find? When they're spooking, shooting, they're running, you cannot get a well-aimed shot. You do not get good shot placement. And what happens? The deer still run so far you can take another day to find them, even with a three seven five. However, when you've, you make them stop and they're unalarmed, no adrenaline, broadside, double lung shot, high shoulder blades, bind shot, the classic shots. You can kill them stone dead with your 6.5 Creedmoor. You can kill them stone dead with your 6.5 or 55, which they use so uh, well to kill moose in Sweden. You can use a 7mm 08. You will kill them stone dead because why? It has not, killing a power has nothing to do with muzzle energy. It's the greatest myth in, in mm. killing. 90% of killing is the destruction of a vital organ. All you need is a bullet that will penetrate deep enough to destroy that organ and the bullet constructed well enough to keep penetrating to the other side of the animal and stop under the skin. It doesn't have to whip out the other side. It doesn't have to leave a blood trail. In fact, the fact is most bullets that exit Samba do ne never do leave a blood trail. It's a myth doesn't happen um, you can sum up calibers required for Samba in about one paragraph most of the stuff about magnums is just from people who really don't understand it's probably the most misleading thing for young hunters today they've got to have a magnum in what is now super light rifles the recoil and muzzle blast is enough to make any of them get a flinch when the truth of the matter is what they should have bought was a 7mm 08, a 308, 270, or a 3006 and bought a decent bullet, a Barnes TTSX. You can go light for caliber. I use a 150 grain on my 3006. I've got a Remington 700 CDL uh, stainless timber. It shoots three. 150 grain bars TTSX into less than 0.4 of an inch. Three inches high at 100, it's four inches low at 300. And just recently, to maximize my accuracy in longer shots, I bought the latest rangefinders Roski binos and put all the data and put all the data into the binos. Incredible invention. Um, my tip for hunters is stop getting hyped and misled about calibers. And, and also all the nonsense about calibers. Sure, 
everyone's going to want to gun gun manufacturers going to want to confuse you because they want you to buy a new rifle they want you to buy a new ammo new dies but it's it's really misleading information it's confusing I, um, and misleading i think you summed it up pretty well in your um in your biography when you said that people started taking on larger calibers to shoot samba when they realized that all they could do was shoot them in the hams as they were running away so they needed to get all the way through that to uh to to be able to stop it as it ran off so yeah bang on look you've got to use a good bullet and and i think the best assessment summer summary of this which i quoted in my Huntsmart book was written by thin agard uh yeah thin, thin agard uh i've got his book selection selected works he sums it up in one paragraph and i'm quoting him when i'm talking about 90 percent of killing power is shot placement to a vital organ the rest of the deer is dead space it's not it's not killing space um people think i hear him in gun shops talking about you got a dinner plate to shoot at size target well that's rubbish the dinner plate broadside on the samba you got four inches of brachial plexus huge double lung blood vessels you got four inches which will kill that deer if you shoot on the edge of the dinner plate you're shooting a slow it's a slow bleeding wound the deer will escape could even survive it is not a dinner plate and here are the classic shots so one third up from the wither in line with the middle of the front leg it is not behind the front leg it is in line with the middle of the front leg and all this is shown vividly in, in my books and it's one third down from the wither in line with the front leg hmm. i shot a base spine shot that is probably the best shot of all and you know what i'm talking about is i'm just i'm just riding on the shoulders of giants most of what i've done in terms of a lot of what i teach i'm riding on because i've i have a library extensive library i tap into the best experts on these subjects kevin robertson the perfect shot the sharpshooter guys from matt grant co from new zealand who've done an incredible amount of research into shot placement killing effective bullets how bullets kill you know i was reading i i, I had a custom 9.3 by 62 made fn action commercial action roger party holy figured walnut Dwayne weeby bottom metal tse barrel number three profile it shoots half MOA. And I was reading recently a book uh, on the 9.3 by 62. I just purchased it. It's called the 9.3 by 62 manual. It was pretty bloody enlightening. And the message is simple. It's got nothing to do with muzzle. It's got nothing to do with muzzle velocity. It's to do with a well-constructed bullet traveling at about 23, 2400 feet per second to kill the biggest animals on earth in Africa or the smallest antelope and yeah that's that's it for the for young hunters watching i would say to you do not get all hyped up and confused by this talk constant talk about calibers and bullets learn about the animal direct your energy and your resources to learning about the animal that is the whole key to hunting and I'm 70 now. In my next 10 years, that is what I want to focus on. 
I want to focus on bringing together, which is what I have been working on all this time, all the knowledge the from anthropology, First Nation people, their skills, and synthesize that with what we do now know from modern science tells us. We t modern science tells us about the rate of UV increase with elevation, about the decrease in, in, in temperature with elevation. It tells us about chill factors. Um, we can tap into all this, put it together, and we become so much better hunters. And, and what I want to focus on in this area is not cross-gully hunting. Quite frankly, anyone with basic knowledge can shoot Samba across gully. If you can see across gully, you can, with basic training, you can shoot them standing on the opposite face with a rangefinder, modern optics. And in a lot of cases, you know, they're not going to be able to hear you. Then they aren't see you. Their defences are pretty well negative, negated. Mm. I want to focus on hunting in close, and and that's real skill. And at the moment, I'm collaborating with a guy called Chris Pegg, who's only recently got into samba hunting, but he's got into saddle hunting. Mm. It's a it's a it's a type of hunting, tree stand hunting, perfected in America, and it's quite intriguing. And it's all based upon pulleys and ropes and where you can swing all around the tree. You're not restricted in your field of fire as you are with standard type tree stands. But it's about being in close. It's about using, having that, possessing that knowledge about scent control, animal movements to be able to set up spots and shoot, hunt animals that maybe are no more than 60, 70 yards away and as close as 10 to 20. And I think that's the new frontier for salmon hunting here. Hmm. And, and an absolute challenge for, for those hunters who like to be challenged. Um, exciting times, there, quite frankly. Is there truth to the, is there truth to what I've heard that deer don't, they don't look up for predators? Is that, is there truth to that? I've never, I've been to India, spent two weeks on safaris in India, night, every morning, every night, never seen, I've never seen a samba look up. I've never seen one look up here except when there was a noise made up in the tree. Mm. And I thought about this. When I was in India, I saw a lot of leopards, leopard trees, and I, was, I began to realise that there is such a thing as a leopard tree. There's the perfect tree for a leopard. It's mm. got to have... The bow, horizontal bow of adequate thickness for it to lie on. It needs to be high enough off the ground so tight they're not they can't be preyed upon by tigers. It needs to have adequate thick canopy above that bow to stop uh, the sun and heavy rain. So guess what? Saba would never go near that tree because all the leopard trails of scent of leopard all lead to that tree. Mm. Samba would know that. So Samba don't need to look up for worry about leopards. They know where the tree is. They know all the strategically placed leopard trees. They would stay away from them. So there's no need to look up, and certainly they absolutely do not, and they don't do it here in Australia either. And that's my explanation 
as to why they don't look up, given that their main predator is actually tigers on the ground, sneaking close to the ground. That's where their main danger lurks all the time, 24-7. It's not from trees. One of the other things that you said before um, about the about the whistle, the fox whistle. Um, oh, did I tell you that? I shouldn't have given you that secret. That was special. <laughs> go go on. Uh, but, <laughs> but while I'm talking about it, um, yeah. Are you are you are you suggesting that you let that thing off at full noise? No, oh, absolutely. When I need to. Look, we've been like, on the face like on the training one course. Back on the samba, he honks at you, and you whistle back. Um, well, you know what? I think um, even when they're bolting, uh, once they're far enough away, that whistle could still make them stop in their tracks and turn back and look at you. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's you know I, I haven't heard it used for samba, but it was a when we first started shooting years years ago, it was a common thing, you know, especially if, if you ever grew up anywhere or you you know if some of your first experiences shooting was shooting roots. Is that you whistle, you know? We used to, we used to carry, you know, referees' whistles, yeah. and you just give out they the don't blast, and they just, well. you know, they just kind of go, they go, well, what's that? <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, yeah. um, it's that's what it was, and it would, it would, we just pull them up, pull them up, you know. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I haven't heard it for uh, Samba, but I mean, um, I, I certainly know. As, and as John said, I've certainly known places around the world where whistling, having a whistle is a is a is a is a you know is a technique for getting an animal that's on the move to give you that stop. And I mean, you see guys do it here, you know, when you when they're hunting red or anything like that, and the, the deer starts moving, you know, you make the yeah or something like that. Yeah, it's just got a peep it's just bang gives you that chance to um. Uh, you know, pull them up, and I even seen those guys in the states using thermals. They'll talk to the pigs. Yeah. Okay, hey pig, and it just stops. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the the growth in deer numbers in Victoria, yeah. well, all over the country. Yeah. Um, what do you have an opinion or anything you'd like to share about the um, the action plan that the deer action plan that was out for consultation over the last few months? Um, I, look, quite frankly, no. I, this is what I, this is my take on it. There's a lot of tangents that go, go down. I just stick with this. Do my damn best to train as many hunters as possible so they are absolutely efficient, effective hunters that can go out there and within a few days harvest deer without a problem. That's what I focus on. Mm. I focus on refining that my system. I'm still up the bush all the time, although I haven't been for seven weeks. I broke my ankle on a steep mountain face seven weeks ago, carrying heavy camera gear, uh, unbalanced, got in the log jam, tipped over backwards, leg caught, hobbled out down the steep mountain face on a bloody stick. I broke the fibula, ripped tendons off. So I've been out there the last seven weeks. But I'll tell you the beauty of that day was that morning I got the most incredible video. Uh, I've invested a huge amount of money again to uh, buy the latest mirrorless, all the latest mirrorless Nikon gear, Z9, Z9, Z6.2s, 800, 6.3 lens. Um, 
because in the past my, my focus has been photographs for books, the best photos. But now my focus is the, is not just photos for books, but video for my training course modules, online modules I'm developing, mm. and for YouTube uh, promotional stuff. And the latest Nikon mirrorless cameras are just um, mirrorless cameras are a total different ball game for uh, video. DSLRs just are obsolete now for video. Great for stills. So I'm focused on that. And um, so I'm just constantly out there. And that morning I got an incredible photo of this hind. She would be the most pregnant sand behind you've ever seen. She was like a barrel. Mm. And she was being followed by her calf from the previous calf. He was just growing his pedicle. So he was about eight months of age. Seven, eight, he was just growing them. Anyhow, she couldn't have been more than a week or two off calving. But she's on this steep mountain face. She goes to a tree where I videoed a stag in velvet a week before preaching. She goes to that tree and she, in her pregnant condition, stands vertical on this steep mountain face to smell that very spot where he had uh, averted oil from his preorbital glands. She's vertical. It was bloody amazing. I got great footage of it. Anyhow, this this calf of hers comes along and he tries to copy the mother. And he couldn't he couldn't get high enough up the tree to get a purchase, a balancing point with his head on the trunk. So he he basically falls over. And you can tell he was pretty embarrassed. <laughs> it was actually quite funny. So that was the morning before I broke my ankle. Mm. Fuck. But you so, got the images. Mate, and the week before I got the video of the stag in velvet mm. preaching on that same tree. So look, um, look, and the lo- this is what I've learned. The longer you're out there studying Samba, I've been doing it now for a full-time study for 23 years. That's full time. I've I've lived. I've, I've bought places in the bush and lived in the bush to study Samba every day. But what I've learned is, if you keep going out there, you just keep learning new stuff. And one of the things of note is that where you've got droughts and then years of plenty of rain, years of average rain, then plenty of rain like we've had the last three or four years here in Victoria, compared to three year droughts or ten year droughts. All these overlays and the way the deer behave changes. The way they feel cold changes. How long it takes them to, how far they have to travel for feed changes. How quickly they can fill up changes. Their fat cover changes. Um, Their antler growth changes. The size of antlers, of course, changes the weight and size that they can grow to. So you see all these variables occur in different seasonal or I suppose annual cycles of conditions. And that's probably one of the things I've learned, I've been able to learn by being staying at it for so many years through so many good and bad cycles, droughts, years of plenty, years of average. But look, 
getting back to what you're saying, the guy coming from Queensland or interstate, but the price of fuel and everyone's time poor, he needs some. The, the, the smart thing is to learn about the deer and maximise your opportunity. It's mm, good advice. Mm. We've had a couple of other uh, Samba hunters um, that we've spoken to. One one in particular was a guide and, and he had a, a similar message and it was not necessarily self-promotion but it was certainly, you know, in, in, invest in the knowledge and, you know, increase your successes. Um, I've been down a few times. Um, I've, I've, I'm that typical guy that's wandered into the bush and tried to walk them up and have seen plenty of them running away. Um, and, you know, that's that's just the way it is if you don't know people down there or you haven't invested in the in the knowledge, like you say. So, yeah, it's good advice. But, you know, you can pick any patch of bush in state forest. And providing it hasn't been flogged by hound hunters who do remove a lot of deer, uh, they can remove the bulk of the deer from an area. And you go to areas, find out areas that aren't hunted by heavily by hound hunters. They may be areas where thermal shooters are trying to exploit it, but they're not going to get all the deer, nor mm. spotlighters. They're not going to get all those deer. And, and these deer learn. These deer learn about spotlighting. They learn about vehicle. They learn about vehicle noise. They, you know, they learn. They hear a vehicle come, they're gone before the spotlight even comes out or the guy can show his thermal. Those deer will still be there. It's just a matter of having the knowledge, acquiring those knowledge, that knowledge, and you will be successful. Unfortunately, because of the licensing of game management, um, by game management of licensed pet food shooters now going on to farm fringe properties, unfortunately, they are no longer the great places for a lot of recreational hunters to hunt because they, they're paying them per kilo, the farmer per kilo. And they're with thermals, Samba really have no protection. You've only got to have the wind in the right direction, the breeze in the right direction, and the samba has no protection. They just clean out samba off farm fringe properties. So they, again, my advice to hunters, ask if you're looking for permission on far, on farm fringe property, ask the question, is this hunted by thermal meat shooters? If the answer is yes, forget it. You're not going to be successful there. I know this for a fact, the deer get cleaned out. So find yourself, still find yourself state forests. Mm. But remember, if you look, if you understand the whole wagon wheel principle of hubs, spokes, and what Samba actually do eat, you need to understand that as a part of the whole education. A lot of people think, you know, they only eat browse they think that grass is only what fallow deer eat and red deer well that's not true samba eat a hell of a lot of grass they don't just eat browse but you've got to find those areas and understand photosynthesis you've got to understand about disturbed areas of logging coops and 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 open areas and you've got to find those spots but then you still got to know how to um 
set up properly. You've got to know where the deer are going to be coming, travelling from. That gets back to applying the overlays that are in my book. Uh, the overlays tell you where the deer went to bed for the day. They tell you that. So that you know where they went to bed for the day in those weather conditions. You know where they're coming from. You know, when it's freezing cold, they're not coming from the cold south side. They're going to be coming from a north, warm north, northeast side. What I'm talking about here is waiting in ambush. You need to know the right equipment to have. Mm. Yeah, and the right equipment is safari slings, um, bipod shooting sticks, not big, heavy tripods or big, heavy bulk pods. They're not for a samba hunter. I sell them off my website. Vanguard, Scout, B62, weighs nothing. Silent to set up, quick to set up. It's all you need. It's compact. You need basic gear. Safari sling makes all other slings obsolete for samba hunting. Once you have a safari sling, you wouldn't use anything else. Quite familiar it with just, them. What's that? I said we're quite familiar with them, yeah. Right. Well, you understand you know, the concept. They're just... Changes though all the rules about movement, speed of being able to put up a shot, take a shot, ergonomics, all that. And the other thing about rifles, I'll say, do not buy rifles with noisy, non-ergonomic safety catch because they are so slow and noisy to get off. You, if a samba pops up in front of you, and I know this for a fact, I know blokes who have lost big stags because they were using a three-position safety. All my safety catches are sliding side ergonomic. One of the best is a Remington 700. You can't knock it off accidentally. It pushes forwards totally silently under pressure as you mount the safari sling. Browning safari grade rifles, same was 98, my favorite rifle. Slot totally silent, sliding side safety that you can't push off accidentally. But as you mount the rifle, it's off automatically. Remington 700 is the same. They're two of the best that bring to mind uh, for not just silent and ergonomic, but you can't accidentally push them off. Mm. A lot of other sliding safeties uh, are too easily pushed off. And why am I talking about safety catches? Do not carry a rifle in this so-called half bolt down position, but lock. It's totally dangerous. I was asked to publish an article about that once in my magazine, which I ran for six years, and I simply refused. I was only shot once by a hunter carrying his rifle, Ruger 77, in the half, chambered round, bolt down the first lock. When you fall, which can happen so easily in chamber country, what happens? Your body automatically pushes the bolt down, what do you do? You grab the safety cat, the pistol grip, and you pull the trigger. It's an instant, it's that reflex action. Totally unsafe. Use a safari sling. Hunt on your own, which is what I've always done. Uh, you've got to be loaded. Safety catch on. And here's the other thing that's absolutely important. Do not Play around adjusting safety catches yourself. Uh, trigger trigger weight. You might be able to do that on some of the Seikos, which you, you know you've got an Allen key. You can adjust the trigger safely. Uh, sear engagement, but that is something that can 
cause you know rifles to simply go off when you close the bolt. Do not interfere, change, trigger weight. You've got to take that to an experienced, qualified gunsmith. Um, that, that's probably my tips on rifles and calibers. What about optics then? German number four reticle is my favourite. It's classic. Uh, Googling bright. German number four reticle. <laughs> bright. On that one. Bright. As bright as you can get. I like 50mm, 56 Look, if you can, buy, you can afford the best optics, if you can buy, afford to buy Swarovski Z6i's and Z8's, for example, you can get away with 42 millimeter objectives because they're so bright at 42. They're amazing. But your average stuff, like for example, we sell Vixen, I sell Vixen online, made in Japan, absolutely bright as. I start with 50 mil objective and my favorite is still 56. Because when you're in, you're hunting Samba and you're in close and dark gullies, you'll have Samba coming in close to dark. Dark animal, low light, 56 max, and I always go for illuminated red dot, fine red dot. So if you've got a German number four to start with, even if you haven't got a red dot or your red dot fails, battery goes flat, a German number four with not too fine across in the middle is the best. It's the best. But nothing beats it. it. That's my opinion. I certainly like the the number four or the you know. And there's a couple of variances of it, but that idea of that you know, the the the, the post and mm. the way. And even if it's not a luminate reticle, I've got a Z6 Suara that I carry for a number of years. That was number four, but not illuminated, but it's certainly that. It does tend to drive your eye to the target. What you, I'm not sure how they they fluked it, but it's certainly when you bring it up to your to your eye, it does bring that target into into the scope very well. I'm not sure exactly how, but it certainly does. Yeah, well, the side, you know, the thick bars, bottom and two sides. Well, yeah, they they do that. Mm. They they draw that certainly drives your eye instinctively to the center. Providing your center cross isn't too fine, then that'll serve you in very low light for shots or dark chamber. And there's a number of variances of it. You know, there's a there's a there's a four and there's a four i, and I've seen a number of other variances. But that idea that you know the the combination of heavy and not and and lighter crosses certainly does. It, it's really a, a very I find it very pleasing to shoot with it. You know, it's actually just, yeah. it kind of makes sense when you look at it. Yeah. Um, I, um, I, I saw Vixen online. I was a Vixen distributor for 10 years. And I think Vixen, German number four, is the best I've ever seen. They have absolutely nailed it. Hmm. And they make, they, Vixen make, all the Vixen optics made in Japan are made for the European market. That's what they're made for. Low light, sitting weight, you know, high seed hunting. Um, but they have really perfected that. I don't like the German number four that's got the f- gets quite fine in the center cross because mm. you're just going to lose it in, in very low light on a dark animal. Yeah, and it 
I'll take a unique good good binoculars. There was a, well. there was a... Yeah, look, binoculars are so good today. If you buy good quality binoculars today, the optics are so good. You don't need bigger than forty two mil diameter. You know, I, when I started going in two thousand, I had Swarovski eight by fifty six. Oh yeah. Well, well they weighed forty six ounces. Mm. But I didn't carry a rifle. I, I was a guy. I wasn't there to shoot. So I, I was happy to carry these huge eight by fifty six. But today, a Swarovski eight by forty two is so bloody Lovely. bright. Mm. Um, you don't need to go bigger. You don't need to go to 50, even fifty. I was having this conversation with a guy today. He asked me to ring me up. He just bought the book, actually, and uh, I rang him up to ask him why he bought the book, and we got talking, and he wanted to know about binos. I said, just buy yourself a top quality 8 by, eight by 42 is what I prefer. I've done a lot of testing, comparison testing between 8s and 10s. The image size between 8 and 10 is not even detectable. But when you're in Samba country, you know, you're walking hills. It's not flat going. You carry a day pack, you got a rifle. Um, eight by forty twos has got far less handshake. As soon as you go to ten, you've increased magnification by twenty five percent, you've increased handshake. And the only way, and this is why safari sling is so important, you've got to have the rifle across here, your waist, not sticking up in the air. Catching Samba with the movement, catching the eye, and falling off your shoulder all the time, constantly being readjusting. But Safari Sling enables you to put both hands on your binos. And in Samba country, that's essential. You must eliminate handshakes to see the detail. You know, these deer, when they're better, you're only, you're only going to see small amounts of detail. You're not going to see a small, de a complete deer. Unless, of course, you're blowing the Fox 40 whistle. And it makes $40,000. Honestly, it makes $40,000 worth of optics obsolete. They stand up and look at you. We're on a training course. There was $40,000 worth of optics. We had a 30 to 70 by 95 Swarovski spotting scope on a tripod. We had 50 56 Soros on a tripod. 15 by 56 Likers on a tripod. We had all sorts of association, eight by forty two like Swarovski, Vixens. We're glassing this space place where the overlays told us, narrowed the place down to ten percent of total cost. The overlay said they're nearer there. So we glassed it. For an hour, we could not find a deer. It was eleven AM by this time and the guys are pretty hungry. We've been there since the first light at seven AM. They're freezing cold. Trying to go head to, head to my property at Swiss Creek for lunch. One of the guys said, Daryl, why don't you blow on the whistle? You, you know, you've been talking about how to make them stand up. So I said, Yeah, and this is the lesson. If you're going to leave a spot and you haven't found the deer, always blow on the whistle before you leave. What happens? I blow on the whistle, my glass at 10% of the total forest where they should be, nothing happened. I waited. I blew one more time, loud as I could. Glass. Suddenly, there is seven Samba standing up, including a huge tag where before $40,000 worth of optics couldn't find us a deer. But a $25 Fox 40 whistle did the trick.
And I have done that so many times, it's actually ridiculous. Sorry, uh, Swaro, Zeiss, Blue Pole, Leica. Uh, <laughs> hey, do you correct me if I'm wrong, but a Fox 40 whistle is a sports whistle. It's not a Fox whistle, isn't it? It's made by a company called Fox 40. It's yeah, a it's a sports whistle. whistle. Yeah, sure. It's the one that goes on your finger. No, it's not. No, not that one? With, no, I buy them in blazer orange, blazer orange land use. No, they're a safety whistle, actually. Mm. No, they're actually like a, a pee whistle. whistle. Yeah, no, I, it's I, not. I, no, it's not. It's not. It's, not? It's, it's actually made for safety. Another reason to carry it if you were lost and you didn't have a PLB to activate or seriously injured and there was a search party and you had broken ribs, you're not going to be yell out, the pain will kill you, but you could blow on that whistle. Mm. It's amazing. You can hear it. People would hear it from 300 yards away. Huh. It's a safety whistle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fox 40 uh, Classic. Mm. Fox 40, he they're looks- on our website. I've written about it. In the, look, in the Huntsmart book, it shows you photos of a deer that stood up on training courses. Mm. How interesting. Hey, um, on that, on that uh, subject of whistles, one of the other questions that I was asked by someone um, knowing that we were going to have a chat at some point was, can I ask about the whistling sound that the deer make to each other? Is it, sorry, is it a communicative whistle between the deer or is that just a myth? I think the first thing to point out is Samba makes very... Samba are an absolutely solitary, silent mm. animal. Why? Because they evolved with a solitary, lethal predator called a tiger. Samba did never announce where they are. They do not give themselves away. They are silent. Unlike all northern hemisphere species, you want to name moose, elk, fallow, red deer, which have a rut. As we know, six-week rut for fallow, about the same for red. It's only three weeks for moose. It's an actual rut. And, of course, we all know how overt it is. All the noise, the stag, the bucks, the males, signalling all the does, where they are, urinating over themselves, bringing them into estrus. Absolutely. It's a breeding frenzy. Samba do not rut. It's the most misused word in the whole Samba vocabulary. If Zonosols is the most important, the one that's most misleading is that Samba rut. Samba do not have a rut. They had no, in evolution, there was no reason to have a rut. The reason there's a rut in Northern Hemisphere species is because of the extreme winters of minus 20, minus 40 degrees. All the food covered in snow, they couldn't afford to have a situation where calves' offspring was born in winter. They'd all perish. Evolution has dictated that all the fawns are born in mid-spring mm. where there's plenty of grass, there's no snow, temperatures are mild, the, the mothers are able to find enough forage to produce enough milk to nurture them. But that's Northern Hemisphere. That's why there's a rut. Samba come from South Asia. There are no extreme temperatures in South Asia other than heat. 
For example, in India, where Samba came from, in Ranthambore, the winter, which is based upon November, December, January, the average daytime temperature is 24 degrees in the winter, not minus 20, not minus 40. The lowest average nighttime temperature is 11 degrees, not minus 10, 20, 30 degrees. Evolution didn't require these deer to have a rut. They have a very long, prolonged breeding period. There's no absolute synchronization of uh, antler casting, antler breeding, breeding in Samba as there are in Northern Hemisphere species. It does not but, happen. Errol, is it, is it fair to say, though, that uh, if you're monitoring a, a, a herd of deer on your farm, yep. that they have their localised rut period at the same time every year? No. No, That's they not, could change. No, no because it's, it's all about when they actually come in hard antler. And they do not come in hard antler at the same time. You've got salmon in hard antler in February. You've got them in December. Yeah, but do, does that, does that change every month? Does that one? Does that does that group of stags that you would be watching? They would go through a cycle. Does that does that that cycle wouldn't change every year? It might change a little bit. Gen generally, is that same stag going to be in hard antler at the same time every year? No, it's it's not about a group. It's about each individual deer okay. cycle. Interesting. It's individual. It's not a group thing. Um, I've had to let guiding, I've had to let stags go in June that had 12 inches of soft antler, huge stag. Hmm. When typically in the last two weeks of May and first two weeks of June, a lot of your big 30-inch stags are actually rubbing out. But it's not total synchronisation. It's not like in northern hemisphere species. you got calves being born almost any time of the year. For Samba. It doesn't happen with Northern Hemisphere species. For the reason already pointed out, evolution determined it can't happen. They have to be born in mid spring um, when there's plenty, of, when the temperatures are mild, there's plenty of feed, no snow cover, and so the mothers are able to obtain enough food to, to nurture them. But Southeast Asian species are a total different breeding system, antler cycle system to Northern Hemisphere. Um, and I think it's important to to understand that. So a lot of hunters who come to Victoria are used to hunting Russian species such as red and fallow would expect to find samba or some type of mating call. Hmm. They don't have a mating call. You know, if you watch a fellow buck, you know, he, he's overt, he's trothing, he's urinating, he's going off his tits, he's dragging hinds into his leg, does into his leg to breed them. When a samba brings a hind into estrus, which they do through their distributing their sex pheromones through the urine in wallows and preach and scrapes above the preaching trees, that, that deer, he's brought them in. They, they come into estrus, a three-day cycle, 
one day coming in, one day the peak estrus, one day going out. Those stags take those hinds off in the most caressing, quiet, <laughs> secretive love affair. It's absolutely nothing like the Northern Hemisphere's rushing species. And they go off on their own. It's, uh, it's You're not going to hear noises. Sure, there is some noise. There's squeaking of there's squeaking of samba uh, like birds. There's some mewing between, but it's all really low volume. You've got to be close to hear it, very close. Mm. The only thing sound that samba make, and it's got nothing to do with that I can tell to do with the breeding system. And I wrote an article about this uh, in issue three of our magazine. Samba do bellow. Stags will bellow like a domestic bull. And um, it's not frequently heard. It's fairly irregular. But from time to time, hunters have heard it and have absolutely zeroed in on the stag that was doing it for long enough to enable them to actually get close enough and actually observe it. But it's actually bellowing like a domestic bull. So, Samba are very quiet, secretive animals. But they're very social too. Someone's I, I can tell you, I, I could, there would be plenty of hunters who will disagree with me about the rutting and rut. But I've, I follow the science and I, I've studied the scientific reports that have been done, for example, at Massey University in New Zealand. And you know, they, have done, they have done absolutely intense, in detail, comparative studies between Samba and Red Deer, for example, done for the reason of assessing the suitability of Samba for farming in, in New Zealand. Red, and they found that um, young Samba stags get two spikes of testosterone throughout their hard outlet period. But the mature breeding stags of eight to 12 years, that, that is the peak breeding period, age eight to 12, they got up to four and more spikes. And that's to keep them in breeding condition during that whole five and a half months that they actually carry antlers. Now in Northern Hemisphere species, at the start of the rut, they get one massive spike. This applies to moose, reds, fallow, elk. Huge spike of testosterone. And that's what keeps them in breeding condition for that, as I said, elk, red, fallow, that six-week rut, six-week rut. And then it drops off to almost nothing. It's samba, and that's over. The breeding is over. Mm. But Samba will stay in breeding condition any time they're in hard antler for five and a half months. So it's a very different uh, breeding system and, of course, brought about simply by evolution. 
and evolution is determined by the weather and the weather conditions of Asia, South Asia, as opposed to the totally different weather conditions of northern the northern hemisphere winters. But I'll be interested to hear what you guys think about that. Oh, I think there's so many um, concepts and ideas that float around. Um, you know, just just what I was asking a minute ago. I had uh, assumed that if a, if, a, if a deer was in hard antler in December, then that deer had its own little local season and it would be in hard antler in December every year. And you could get to know that in its little local group. Um, clearly, I was oh, well, wrong that, about that. No, no, you're, you're right for the individual animal. Oh, for the if individual. He, if he's in hard antler in December, look, Look, in volume three in the Huntsmart book, I've got cracker, absolute cracker trail camera photos mm. of monster stags at Wallace. But some of them are there at late December when a lot of stags have already cast, started casting way back in September, October, yeah. November. So but I think still what there fascinates now. me about samba hunting because, you know, in you know, we chase red and fallow. You know, they're in that condition for a specific time of the year. You know, you could you, know, you could get to really get to know a specific animal down in Victoria, or two or three of them that are in different cycles. Um, and you don't have sure. every man and his dog necessarily. You know, booking up the prime time of samba hunting because it's not the same thing. I think that's really interesting. You will yeah, have, it certainly uh, is, the, that's for sure. Well, the stag, the individual stag, will have the same, keep the same antler cycle. Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. He'll mm-hmm. keep that throughout his, his his life. But it's an individual cycle. Mm-hmm. It's not a herd cycle. In fallow and red deer, and elk, it's a herd cycle. Yeah. You know, it's synchronisation. It's total synchronisation. If you look in the Hunt Smart book in volume three, you'll then see cracker stags at Wallace, 30 inch bus in hard antler in February as well. If you look at, well, I've, got, I've had trail cams running for, oh, Christ, I've been running them for well over 20 years, nearly 30 years. I used to run the old system where he had a, a receiver, a transmitter, Olympus weatherproof camera. That's how unsophisticated they were and they had to break a beam. Mm. Um, we have calves on trail cameras, young calves in December. There's no total synchronisation. And it was interesting when the bushfires hit, I walked the rivers after two or three fire, I, I walked the Mittermitter River and there was 80 Samba burnt where that river was River Valley was moonscaped by a feral fire, or what's now known as a catastrophic. But then you saw the carcasses, nothing escaped that fire. So you saw these carcasses of, of calves of all different sizes. Hmm. Again, because there is no synchronization of the birthing. If, Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 
Oh, look, I've got it on fellow, and of course, I got it for years on fellow. So lots of fellow. In April, when you want to shoot, we'd shoot fellow for meat. I'd always choose six month old uh, females that have been dropped in October. And they're all the same size because they're all dropped at the same time. Hmm. And in April, they were just the perfect eating size and better meat you just could not buy. But they, there they all are, the same size, same weight. It's not, it's not true for Santa. Good point. Good point. I've, I've got uh, one more question I wanted to ask. Um, came again from one of the listeners. Um, and the question was, since the beginning of your writings, The Secret of the Samba series, um, what is one of your most standout moments whilst being out in the bush? Standout moment of being in the bush. Uh, gosh, I think watching that Samba, absolutely pregnant Samba behind, totally bipedal, on an absolute steep face to smell that spot where that stag had had sent Mark preach the week before and that only happened seven weeks ago. That's amazing. That was a, that was a absolute standout. Yeah, I think that's incredible. The fact that you've been doing this since the seventies and one of your most standout moments was in recent days um, tells everyone that you don't learn at all. <laughs> You're still seeing things that you haven't seen before after all that time, which I think. Is oh, and here's another one. You know, um, I'm I'm videoing a Sam behind in her bed at 240, 260 yards below me, right? The calf's there. No problem. I video. I watch them for hours. I watch. I record. And by the way. One of the things I constantly record is temperature. It's one of the most important things for hunters to know. I use a gestural weather meter. Temperature, ambient temperature, is one of the most important things that drives salmon behavior. Now, I'm watching it for hours. I saw them from first light. And I'll just make this point. In my study, um, I use my police investigation skills. I learned covert surveillance of criminals. I learned all this stuff. You don't let criminals know you're working on them, watching them, because what to do totally changes their behaviour. They're no longer doing what they normally do. You want to know what they do. So when I started studying Samba, I used exactly the same skills. Uh, I got my best, I got wonderful in-close photos when I was at the Bunyip enclosure. I couldn't actually better those in terms of detail. However, when I started studying Samba, if you get in close to get those beautiful in close photos, with the DSLR cameras of that time, not not so now with the new mirrorless, because there's totally silent shutters. Mm. But you would only get a couple of bursts of those motor drives. And the deer's gone. So you got great photos. But you've lost the opportunity for the whole day of watching what that deer actually does all day. So I never focused on that. I never went that route. I went the covert surveillance route, watching from a distance. 
And as a result, I bought the best lenses. I mean, I paid 23000 just for one lens, 800 5.6 Nikon. So I could video and photograph gear from 250 yards away, up to, up to 400 easily. And the reason was I wanted to know what Samba did all day, not what they do for a few seconds. So I used to watch Samba from first light. I would always be in the bush at first light. I apply the overlays. I knew where the deer were going to be. I went to the vantage point looking at that spot where they were going to be. And then I use all those techniques. Do not let your scent get into that gully. Um, do not be skylined. And I watched those deer, photographed those deer, made notes all day, temperatures. Some days I stayed it all day. I wanted to know if the deer got up and moved. If they got up, if they did get up, what did they do? Did other deer come and visit them? What did they do when they got up at four thirty? Because what they did, they went, they got up to feed. But where did they go to feed? I wanted to know all these, the answers to all these questions. So between training courses, I went out on my own, always on my own for four days at a time. I would do this type of study all day, taking the temperatures every thirty minutes before first light, at first light, right through the day, and then at night. I would go back to the camp, write up the notes. And when I came home, I would type up all the notes as a file. I would download all the photos, select them into the best. And then the final selection, I would file the details, um, the word file with all those photos, which had the date, time, temperature range right through the day, wind, whatever the weather conditions were which became an incredible reference because when I wanted to write the Huntsmark book, all I had to do was go to those photos and I had every bit of absolutely essential fields of information that the hunter needs to know. And in the Huntsmark book is all those information. I've got the close-up photo of the deer. The close-up photo has been then converted to a small orange icon. And then I've got the wide-angle photo photo of the gully. Then my wife used all her design skills to put those gear exactly where they were. So you got mm. context. Here's the whole wide angle gully. This is where the deer were. You know. Um exactly. Um and I've got wide angle photos of the of, often of the deer in those spots as well, the actual deer. So then I did large captions and dropped in all that data, date, time, temperature weather conditions, what the deer did. And I must say, if it hadn't been from life being a book designer by trade and a very talented one and a very patient one, my books would never have seen the light of day. But you know, I think the Hunt Smart book from a design point of view is a work of art and I just take my hat off to my wife. It's, it's a bloody cracker in terms of design. But her attitude was, she just stayed there and did as many hours as it took to perfect it. Now, if we had taken that text to a book designer at 100 bucks an hour, what they charge from the photos, we would have got nothing like that book. Mm. So, you know, I'm very fortunate and privileged that Lynn, my wife, is such a 
wonderful book designer and as a result I've been able to create we've been able together to create these books by the way she doesn't give herself much credit for all this no but it's it's nice to hear that you do that uh not well, just here I, I but on your website and in, in other places you you're always praising her work and it's yeah it's really good to hear look dick power the late dick power uh dick wrote two articles for almost every magazine we wrote we published issues one to 18. he wrote them on samba in close he was a master of in close he was an incredible in close samba photographer with no equal he was an incredible big game owner from all around the world this is how he he wrote these stories for us and his samba stuff on in close photography and he said he'd been all around the world and bought books from all around the world and never seen design that matched Lynn's. He thought her design was just absolutely outstanding. So coming from Dick, that that really meant something. Oh, that's great. Mark, any final questions? I know we're we're running to time and I think that's a really good place to to wrap it with um with, with those notes. But Mark, did you have any other questions? You're on mute, buddy. Got some background noise with kids running around. Um, look, not really a question. I, I'm just still considering this idea about, you know, um, your, your, your observations about Samba behaviour in regards to their, you know, evolutionary environment. And I suppose I'm, I'm trying to think how that translates to reds because the reds we have in Queensland are not living the same ever you know environment as the reds where they came from the northern hemisphere so you know first things is their calendars 180 degrees out of sync so it's it's, it's actually interesting observation um and I, um I suppose i'm just trying to think about how that actually falls together so it's not really a question it's just something i've been thinking about since you mentioned that because certainly you know if you think about reds here they don't have to breed to uh weather conditions um there is no you know in fact if you think about it it would probably be better for a red in southern queensland to drop going into winter rather than going into summer in terms of you know in, in terms of environmental conditions so it's quite an interesting observation that one so throughout these red deer evolve in their northern hemisphere uh, habitat for thousands and mm, thousands. Yeah, about from basically from the end of thousands the ice, of years. So end of yeah, ice age. So yeah. this um, this breeding system is just ingrained in their DNA. Mm. You can transplant them anywhere, but this is ingrained in them. But it's exactly the same with samba. Samba were hunted by tigers for. According to the fossil records that I can come up with, at least twelve thousand years. Hmm. Ice age, now, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Now, samba aren't just hunted by samba by tigers. Recent research in India has proven that samba are actually the favourite prey, the preferred prey of tiger. Tigers will hunt and kill samba before all other species. Now, before the proliferation of firearms, invention of nitro powder, 
there were absolutely thousands and thousands of tigers in South Asia. So Samba were harassed by them. If Samba weren't going to be the next meal, they had to be constantly on guard with thousands and thousands of tigers. So this has just become absolutely the anti-predator strategies that Samba developed to avoid tigers in particular, but not just tigers. Because the cave paintings in Bembekta in India also show that Samba are more represented in terms of hunting paintings, hunting scenes of primitive man than any other species as well. So primitive man also appears to a favourite Samba. And that's interesting because during the occupation, the Raj, the occupation of India by the British, the British Army Infantry Officers, such as Inglis, Alexander Inglis, Robertson, Glasgow, right, Musings of an Old Shikari and others, they saw Samba, regarded Samba as a far better challenge than hunting tigers. Tigers Did you see the pictures, Cyril? Did you see those pictures? Beg your pardon? Did you see the pictures? Pitch. When you were when you were witnessing the cave art, were they were they photos oh, or did you oh, see bought, the pictures? I bought the book. Right. I bought the book on uh, cave art of Bimbeka. Did they all have antlers? They've always got antlers. Yeah. So is it At a all? is it a prey thing or is it a an idol? You know, a, a worshiping idols. Is it a you know a trophy thing like it is in modern day? It's interesting. They always have antlers. Well, mm. if you go. I'll, look, I'm in for anthropology. I've got a select whole selection of uh, books of cave paintings from all around the world, no matter where I've bought the books. It doesn't matter where they appear. Spain, France, Africa, Bimbeka. The animals being hunted are always males. Yeah. They've always got horns or antlers. There's never females with no antlers. There's never sellers. Sorry. Here's, that here's the other... Here's the other striking thing. The animals are always painted ornately. Hmm. The men, the hunter, is always represented as nothing more than a stick figure. You never see, I've never seen in a cave painting an ornately ochre-painted hunter, Homo sapien. They're always just a stick figure. But But the animals... Often so innately painted. And I think it goes to tell us about what Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Power of Myth, who lived with First Nation people all his life to study them, found. The animal was everything. The animal was their existence. It provided everything. It provided food, utensils, clothing, hides, sinews for clothing. The man... The man was not important. The animal was revered. And the cave paintings, simple, to my mind, just bear out uh, that absolute fact. Hmm. I think it's, it's a fascinating subject. Jono, I don't have a question. Um, I'm just conscious of time. But what I did have was uh, a thank you to you, Errol, for... Um, 
many, many years ago, before I moved to Australia, my um, my wife actually bought me Secrets of the Samba Volume 1 and Volume 2. And that was my first introduction to hunting in Australia. Um, I've read both books cover to cover many times, um, gotten a lot about it, and today's been an education. But I really wanted to say thank you to you because those books were my introduction to hunting in Australia. Um, I'm actually yet to go and hunt Samba, but one day I hope to. Um, but yeah, thank you from me. Well, thank you, John o, and a great thank you to your wife for supporting the secrets of the Samba way back then. So oh, where I'm originally from South Africa, but from? I was living in England. I was there for 12 years, and we decided to oh, make a move to Australia. Right. And my wife, yeah, she did some research and um, found your books and bought them for me. Well, I'm, I'm wrapped. Uh, I'm stoked that your wife bought those for you. You must you must appeal to the hunter's wife because my wife did the same thing, <laughs> and uh, if I recall, uh, you you made the phone call to her to ask why she was buying it, and uh, she she's like, I don't know, my husband just liked deer, and I thought it was appropriate, <laughs> and you had a good old chat with her at the time, which was really great. Ah, you're right. Well, yeah, I often like to make contact. You know, I'm not I'm not, I'm not an email or a text person. You know, I find in what I do. It's it's good to ring and talk to people why they you know, why they bought the book and you know I spoke to this guy for half an hour today he bought uh, I think he bought the book and the safari sneakers the last the last pair of crooked horn safari sneakers <laughs> probably for sale on earth because the crooked horn have gone broke and I, when they were going broke I bought all the safari sneakers they had left they had a good chat to him and. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Hmm. Should I? And I gave him a few tips and I didn't charge him for the consultation. <laughs> clearly not in the I told, about the I told him about the basic things he needs to get, you know. He's got the book, get the safari thing, get the whistle, get the bipod shooting sticks, get the three-legged stool because you must always sit up on a stool. Do not sit on the ground. It's an absolute no-no. Hmm. And, you know, Forget all the rest of the rubbish you can buy. You don't need it. You know, good binos, good scope, good bullet in your rifle, and and understand the animal. And that's it. Oh, that's good advice. So um, I'll I'll wrap it up and and just say a, a big thanks uh, from me or from all of us. Really, it's been a it's been a great conversation. We everyone knows that you've got this wealth of knowledge, and there's no way you can. You can talk about all of it over a two-hour session, but uh, one thing that the listeners really wanted uh, to hear was, uh, was, was I guess, for you to, to talk about the work that you've put together on a podcast so they can put a, the sound of a voice to, to the books that they read and um, to, to get to understand a little bit more about uh, the man who is Errol Mason. So uh, from us to you, thank you very much. I think it's been a fantastic couple of hours. Love to have you back at some point to, to deep dive into a couple of other topics. But uh, for now, I think that's been a fantastic couple of hours, Errol. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Thanks, Jono. Thanks, Mark. And as you must have picked up, mate, I'm just passionate about Samba, passionate about talking about them. And, and I love teaching people uh, everything there is to know. Because, you know, what we want to do, we want to continue the generation hunters. You know, we want to help continue that. Uh, tradition, uh, as you know, you'll note, as you'll note in the K paintings, 
and not a yeah. paper brown lettuce. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. All right, we'll that's, leave it on that note. That's my last sure. word. Good stuff. All right, mate. Well, thank you very much, and we'll uh, we'll talk to Thanks you again. Sarah.